0: At this point in the book of Deuteronomy, we are outside the specific law commands of chapters 12 through 26 that we've been looking at. Those are the specific, when this happens, do this, this, and this. If this happens, handle it this way. And now we're outside of that into the larger framework of the book of Deuteronomy. So chapter 1 through 11, uh, along similar lines, chapter uh, 27 through the end. Especially here at the end of the book, uh, 27 through the end, It's looking ahead to when Israel will enter the land. So remember, they're on the plains of Moab listening to this long sermon from Moses, but it's looking ahead. It's saying, when you enter the land, how will things look? Specifically in this little passage here, we're looking at what one scholar calls a publishing party. Uh, If you can remember all the way back, chapter 11 ended with some instructions for a ceremony on Ebel and Gerizim, placing the blessing and the curse on those two mountains. And now on the other side of 12 through 26, we're at the other bookend here, back to Mount Ebel. Let me read this and then let's reflect on this together. Now Moses and the elders of Israel commanded the people saying, keep the whole commandment that I command you today. And on the day you cross over the Jordan to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall set up large stones and plaster them with plaster. And you shall write on them all the words of this law when you cross over to enter the land that the Lord your God is giving you, a land flowing with milk and honey as the Lord your God, or rather as the Lord, the God of your fathers has promised you. And when you have crossed over the Jordan, you shall set up these stones concerning which I command you today on Mount Ebel. And you shall plaster them with plaster, and there you shall build an altar to the Lord your God, an altar of stones. You shall wield no iron tool on them. You shall build an altar to the Lord your God of uncut stones. And you shall offer burnt offerings on it to the Lord your God. And you shall sacrifice peace offerings, and shall eat there And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God, and you shall write on the stones all the words of this law very plainly. Then Moses and the Levitical priests said to all Israel, Keep silent and hear. This day you have become the people of the Lord your God. You shall therefore obey the voice of the Lord your God, keeping his commandments and his statutes, which I command you today. This is God's word. Notice at the very beginning there, verse 1, it's not just Moses that addresses the people, but for the first time in the book of Deuteronomy, we see someone else besides Moses speaking. It's Moses and the elders command the people. And this already alerts us to one of the central issues in the book of Deuteronomy, but especially in this last section that emerges. Namely, this last section has a concern with the continuity of faith and practice after the death of Moses. If you remember the larger story of the Pentateuch, um, back from the book of Numbers, Moses is told that he will not be allowed to enter into the promised land. He won't be allowed to cross the Jordan River. So he's, what he's been doing in the whole book of Deuteronomy is preparing the people for life in the land, but it's a life that he himself will not enter with them. And so the question that's now being addressed is, will the people continue to practice the faith? Who will lead the people once Moses is gone? And so we already see the elders, uh, or we're getting a hint of that with the elders along with Moses addressing the people. And then if you look down at verse 9, similarly, Moses and the Levitical priests. So the elders and the priests begin to address the people alongside Moses. So how will the people act? How will they behave after Moses, the mediator, dies? Well, Moses and the elders give a renewed call to keep the commandments. Keep the whole commandment that I command you. Uh, That's a sort of general instruction that we hear throughout the book of Deuteronomy to keep the commandments. But then let's look at verses 2 through 4. We have this specific uh, ceremony that's publishing the word in a public way. We see right away that one strategy for ensuring continuity of faith and practice is to publish, publicly publish the Torah or the law. Um, three times we're told in these verses, two through four, that this is to happen after you cross the Jordan River. So there's an emphasis on when you're in the land. You're to set up these large stones and plaster them over, maybe with lye, wash them, and write on them all the words of this Torah. Well, we have a number of uh, standing stones with laws etched in them from the ancient world. The Code of Hammurabi, for example, has law codes etched into it. And we can understand, uh, if we just sort of imaginatively engage the ancient world a little bit, we can understand why it would be important to have these sorts of written, publicly available law codes Um, If the law was written down and then it was just kept in the king's throne room, he could quite easily tailor it to his own liking and say, well, here's what it said all along. But there's no way to check it. Oftentimes in covenants uh, between two nations or two parties, there would be two copies of the covenant. Each party would have their own copy of the contract. And we have the same sort of thing when you go to the um, title company, right? And it's all in triplicate or whatever, and who knows who gets all these. But several people have copies of the contracts for houses or whatever um uh likewise in the ancient world so you know two copies of the of the covenant treaty that's made and that way you can make sure that one party or the other isn't um changing it well in israel part of the issue here is that it needs to be publicly available so that everybody has access to it and can make sure it's not getting changed they can know what it says And so they're instructed when they enter the land to put up these stones and to write on it the whole Torah, all of these words of the Torah. Probably what he is referring to is at least chapter 12 through 26 of Deuteronomy, but possibly the entire book of Deuteronomy. Seems to be what uh, Moses would be referring to in the first instance there. And so we see right from the beginning, uh, I mean, I guess we're not all the way at the beginning, but early on, you know, Right from the beginning, God's written word is an important tool for ensuring the continuity of faith from generation to generation. And that principle is just as true today. Uh, Certainly there are instances where the faith is passed on orally in tribal culture, for example, um, from generation to generation. Um, There's times when there's been low literacy before the Reformation, for example, and so stained glass windows, things like that, help to keep the memory alive. But in general, God has chosen this to be the means of passing on his word and to keep the faith alive, the actual written word. Now, it seems to me that there's a challenge to us here in this text. In ancient Israel, we're seeing that, for some people anyways, their access to the written word of God meant hiking out to wherever these stones got set up and reading them there. Well, we don't have to go hiking somewhere to find a copy of the Bible. Most of us probably have multiple copies of the Bible in our house. But the question then, or the challenge is, do we study that word? Do we pay attention to it? Are we being shaped by it? This morning we just talked briefly about that line in First Peter about don't be conformed any longer by your former desires or passions. Uh, and it's not that complex of a math equation. Wherever most of your time is being spent, whatever your major influences are, that's what ends up forming you. If it's hours and hours of Netflix, guess what's forming you? Netflix. If it's you know, the Facebook scrolling, if it's a friend group, whatever that is, what's influencing you is what's going to form you, and it shapes your desires. And so uh, we have an obligation to be formed by God's word, and that means studying it, spending time with it making it the influence in our life. We talked this morning about fearing God more than anything else. Well, that's one way that we fear the Lord, is by paying attention to what does he care about, what does he want us to attend to. Notice once again this prominent theme throughout the book of Deuteronomy in verse 3. Uh, Do this when you enter the land that the Lord your God is giving you. God is a giving land, uh, giving God. rather. Uh, he gives you a land flowing with milk and honey And in doing so, he keeps his promises. And Where's all this to happen? Well, it's after you cross the Jordan, you're going to set up these stones on Mount Ebel. Mount Ebel and Mount Gerizim, which was referenced in chapter 11, and is actually going to be referenced again in a few minutes here. uh, Or sorry, next Sunday, not in a few minutes. (laughs) In a few verses is what I mean to say, uh, will be referenced again. Uh, Stand near Shechem, which is a city that crops up throughout biblical history. It's in the northern kingdom. Uh, or or what becomes eventually the Northern Kingdom, but it's in the north part of Israel. Uh, George Adam Smith, a 19th century biblical scholar and geographer who hiked all over uh, Israel and wrote a long geography of Israel, he comments that from the top of Mount Ebel, you can pretty much see all of the historic land of Israel. On a clear day, you can see across the Jordan River into the Transjordanian Plains. You can see down to the Mediterranean. You can see up to the north and down to the south, and so there's a symbolic significance to Mount Ebel right there in the middle of the land. Any questions or comments so far? Setting up these rocks, plastering them, writing them. I know you want to know what was the literacy rate in ancient Israel? Could most people have read it? Well, I just don't know. Yeah, Greta, that's what you were going to ask? I mean, it does seem to presume that having words publicly available is a benefit to at least some people. Um, but I don't, I don't know the hard uh, numbers on that. Yeah, Lulu. Yeah, so plaster is, um, do you see on the walls, can you, is some of it broken away there or just on the back? If you see on the black back wall here, do you see how it's the boards and then there's the broken white stuff? On the back wall here, that would be plaster, so it's putting over instead of sheetrock or something it's putting over a kind of plaster over the rock so it would create a smooth surface to write on so and probably they would have dyed it good question they probably would have uh, bleached it with lye or something so it would have been whitewashed and then written out the written out the commands on that yeah Chris um, the yeah, that's a good question too. This, I think it would have been written on. Um, so things like Kota Hammurabi, yeah, they are etched in with these sorts of chisels into the rock. Um, but the Paleo-Hebrew script has round shapes that you can't etch as easily. Um, and uh, plaster, in the nature of the case, if you're puncturing it a bunch, maybe it doesn't hold up as well. So I think it probably is written on with charcoal or something like that. Yeah. Good question. Yeah. Yeah, so that's, that's a great question, Austin. Um, so here, we're going to see in the next couple verses here that they're also instructed to build an altar. Uh, in Deuteronomy, if you're just reading Deuteronomy, it sounds like there's supposed to be meant to be one structure that has the law copied on it, another structure that's an altar. When you read in Joshua chapter 8, when they're on Mount Ebel doing this, it sounds like it's the same thing. The altar has the words plastered on it. Um, Here in Deuteronomy, Moses keeps saying, on the day when you pass over the river. So immediately when you enter the land, do this. Well, when Joshua enters the land, he realizes Ebel is still several days' march away. And so I think what Joshua is doing is fulfilling this, but in a little bit of a creative way. So they do take up those stones from the river, like Moses says, on the day when you do it, erect some stones as a memorial, Um, But where he actually writes the letters or the the Torah on the stones is in chapter 8, which is after Jericho, after Ai, presumably several weeks into their time in the land. Um, So I think think what Joshua is wrestling with is the practicality of how do you actually do what you're told to do um, as quickly as possible, uh, but also recognizing that as soon as we cross into the land, we have begun to inherit what God has promised and we need to recognize that or, 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 or memorialize that in some way. That's a good question, Austin. All right, well then let's just keep uh, pushing ahead a little bit here in verses five through eight. Oh, I don't always give titles to talks, but tonight covenant renewed in the land by word and sacrament is what we're seeing. It's about once you get into the land, will you still be faithful to the faith that you've practiced under Moses. And so this covenant needs to be renewed once you're in the land. And a big part of that is the emphasis on the word, publishing the word publicly. And Joshua actually in chapter 8, when they do this, he reads the whole Torah so that the people hear it again a second time. Um, In the ancient world, one of the major... um, I'm trying to think what the right word for it is, but uh, 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 points of political tension is when one king or another who had been allies dies. The question is, will the son of that king, the new king, continue to be faithful to that alliance, or will they go another way? Um, Unfortunately, it's often the case that other countries are wondering about us every four years, is will we still keep these alliances, or are we going to go a different direction? But we still see the same issue in the modern world, is... When there's new leaders in charge, are the same alliances going to hold? And in a sense, that's what Deuteronomy is wrestling with here as well. When Moses dies, will the covenant still hold between God and his people? Well, the first part is, is renewing it by publishing the word. The second part, verses 5 through 8, is sealing, sealing the covenant with sacraments. Part two of this ceremony involves building an altar. And as I mentioned just a second ago, it's not clear if this is the same structure that the Torah is written on or a second structure um, from the language here in verse five. Uh, Verse four, when you've crossed the Jordan, set up these stones concerning which I command you on Mount Ebel, plaster them with plaster. Verse five, and there you shall build an altar to the Lord your God. Uh, By setting up the stones, are you thereby building an altar or is it just saying and also build an altar? It's not exactly clear. Either in English or Hebrew. What is clear is that they are to build this altar not wielding iron tools, and that goes back to the Book of Exodus that an altar is not to be built with stones that had been cut with iron tools. They would be built uh, with packed earth or rough hewn. Rough, hewn's the wrong word. So rough. Um, what do you call it? A natural stone stacked up. I- there we go. <laughs> A rock like you find it in the wild. Wild rocks. I, I don't know what the right word here. Um, yeah, yeah. And then uh, on this, they're to offer both burnt offerings and peace offerings. And those two offerings are both described in Leviticus. So it's interesting here at the end of Deuteronomy, uh, Moses is echoing back. He's pointing back to Exodus and the instructions for how to build an altar. That's in Exodus um I think it's right after the Ten Commandments is where it comes. So that would be in the end of Exodus 20. Uh, And then pointing back to the book of Leviticus also. So it's kind of saying (laughs) all those laws you've heard by Mount Sinai, those all still apply. We're bringing all those to bear and bringing it together. The burnt offering is an offering where the offering is, as the name says, burnt on the altar and offered to the Lord. But the peace offering is an offering that's a sign of peace between God and his people. And so a portion is burned on the altar and offered to God, but the majority of that sacrifice is to be eaten by the people. And that's what Moses says here in verse 7. Sacrifice the peace offerings and eat there and rejoice before the Lord your God. Well, if you look back at Exodus chapter 24, I guess I should stick with my notes or I'll get lost. Deuteronomy is looking ahead to the promised land once entered Israel needs to renew its commitment to the covenant. They're not just going to say, we've gotten the goods, we've gotten the land, now we're going to go our own way. They're saying, no, we are still committed to the covenant even now that we are in the land. Remember, the last chapter was all about the risk of forgetting. Well, one way to counter the risk of forgetting in the context of blessing is to continually renew your relationship with God. And how do they renew it? With feasts and with worship. If we look back at Exodus chapter 24, after the law is initially given, Moses and all the uh, 70 elders of Israel are called together. Uh, they worship from afar, but Moses and the elders together eat a sacrifice in God's presence. And it says in twenty-four ten, uh, or 9 rather, Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu and the 70 elders of Israel went up And they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stones like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. And right before that is where Moses throws some of the blood on the altar and some on the people, marking them. uh, The covenant as being sealed. Well, that seems to be this renewal then. As you're going to offer these sacrifices, you're again going to eat in God's presence, Again, on a mountain, that was on Mount Sinai in Exodus, now it's on Mount Ebel. And so it points, uh, again, we're seeing in the Old Testament here a foreshadow, a, 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 a early preview of the New Testament sacraments as well. Westminster Confession says that a sacrament is a sign and a seal. It both is a sign, it's pointing you to something, but it's a seal. Something's really being sealed, God's covenant with his people. And so likewise, at the Lord's Supper, uh, we worship, we rejoice before the Lord, but we also come to the Lord's table and we eat together. And part of the symbolism of that is that our covenant is being renewed with God, that he, we're having a peace meal with God. He's having a fellowship meal with us. Verse 8, and you shall write on the stones all the words of this law very plainly. So again, there's this emphasis going back to the word. Neither the word nor sacrament operate separate from each other, but they operate hand in hand in tandem. Um, the word, the sacrament, we eat what the word explains. Uh, so, so one, it makes it palpable, but they're saying the same message in different modes. And then verses 9 and 10, Moses and the Levitical priests... Oh, sorry, I should stop and to see if there's any comments or anything. Questions, observations? Yeah, Nick. Yeah, it's a good question. I'm I don't I'm nervous about shooting from my hip uh, just because I'm a little bit tired. Um, the this is from Exodus 20, chapter 20, the end of Exodus chapter 20. An altar of earth you shall make for me, and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings, your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come and bless you. If you do make an altar of stones, you shall not build it of hewn stones for if you wield your tools on it, you make it profane. Uh, So somehow it's not set apart for holy use anymore. And then there's this funny bit about don't put stairs on the altar, do a ramp so that you don't expose your nakedness on accident. Um, But I don't see that the way the stones... uh, In some sense it seems to be... uh, My my general sense is that it's pushing against... um, do you remember, I'm trying to remember, oh man, in 1 Kings or Second Kings, one of the kings goes off and he sees someone else's fancy altar and he comes back and gets the bright idea, we should have an altar like this. You're nodding your head, Nate. Do you remember where this is at? <laughs> okay. It is in the Bible. <laughs> That's, yeah. Uh, but he... Yeah, so he he goes to a foreign country, he sees their fancy altar, and he comes back and he says, we should get an altar like this. And I I think the sense is there's a temptation to uh, that you're using your technology to create the altar, and somehow the better the altar is, that you can manipulate God, something along those lines. And so there is a sort of primitiveness to it um, of using unhewn stones. But it looks like maybe Albert has a... Yep. Yep, that's right. Yeah, 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 exactly. Uh, And so maybe that's part of what, maybe that's part of the significance as well is don't try and build a fancy altar to compete with the tabernacle altar. But if you are going to build a sort of ad hoc altar, just gather together stones and and use it in that way. Um, It's not really... Well, I guess it's relevant, but it's neither here nor there. There actually has been a big structure discovered on Mount Ebel by archaeologists, um, which could have been a large um, altar. Um, The footprint would be maybe this section of pews here, uh, some size kind of about like that, and maybe would have been tall. Um, So it could have been Joshua's altar. There's kind of an ongoing debate over whether it was Joshua's altar or a later structure built on the site of Joshua's altar or what, but, um, uh, so, it, it, if it is, it's it's quite large compared to the tabernacle altar. Sorry, I wish I had better answers on some of this stuff, but uh, good questions, nevertheless. Uh, verses nine and ten. Then, it's looking ahead. It, what we've just seen, looking ahead, the covenants going to be renewed, need to be renewed once you enter the land. But notice the language here: "Keep silence and hear, O Israel." This day you have become the people of the Lord your God. That's interesting. You would surely think that they've already been the people of the Lord their God when they were brought up out of Egypt, uh, when they were at Mount Sinai, etc. And yet it seems to me to be the language of covenant. It's saying right now something is really happening. Right now, this day, you are once again the people of God. You shall therefore... Obey the voice of the Lord your God, keeping his commandments and statutes. Notice that, therefore, then, again, like Peter. You are God's people. He's taken you for his own. Therefore, the reciprocal response is that you shall obey the voice of the Lord, keep his commandments and his statutes. I wonder, are there more questions or comments on that? I didn't really develop at length in my notes how this points forward into the New Testament apart from that we also operate a ministry of word and sacrament, that those together inform our lives. Um, But we see also, of course, that this runs in the background of our understanding of Christ's own work, that it's a sacrifice, and that a sacrifice also functions to seal as a seal of the covenant. And so when we eat a portion of that sacrifice at the Lord's table, we're participating in that work um, and, and a renewal of that covenant. So um, this and similar passages about sacrifice, they're always running in the background of that New Testament language in Hebrews and other passages.